Shelley Schlender for MeAndMyDiabetes.com. This is a presentation by Ron Rosedale, recorded live at the 2013 Annual International Insulin Potentiation Therapy Conference held in Dallas. Ron's title for the talk is mTOR, Insulin, and Other Nutritional Roots of Cancer. This presentation was recorded live at the 2013 Annual International IPT-IPTLD Conference, held April 18th through 20th in Dallas, Texas. The next presenter is new to us. This is Dr. Ron Rosedale. He has some really fascinating new information on mTOR, insulin, and the other nutritional roots of cancer. Would you please give him a warm welcome, Dr. Ron Rosedale. Well, thank you. I appreciate your being here. And I will try and make this interesting for you. There is a lot of information. And first, so that you don't get too dizzy, I'm just going to start out with an overview, a story. And I know that it's been kind of politically correct to say that one size shoe doesn't fit all. But it's really been my professional endeavor to actually find the mechanisms that do fit all. And I believe really the similarities of life are far more significant than the differences because they remain similarities because life couldn't get rid of them and be compatible with life. So yes, it's true one size shoe doesn't fit all, but that shoe fits on a foot and that foot attaches to a leg that has to run and hunt and gather and eat food to reproduce, and this is common to all life. There are certain fundamentals of life that we're going to be talking about. Life requires repair to stay alive, and to repair, one needs to divide cells. You need cell division. Cell division requires nutrients. So life, cell division, and nutrition have been linked since the beginning of life. And to really find answers to some of the current problems, or to find the answer, I think, to any disease, one needs to look at the roots of that disease and look at why. Where did it arise from? And then perhaps we might be able to come to a solution as to how to perhaps treat that problem. So that's what we're going to be doing to begin with. We want to look at the history of life. Yep, 10 minutes, history of life, in a nutshell. It's well established that life began in the oceans as single cell organisms. We know that the oceans had plenty of glucose. Glucose was the primary fuel. Deep down in hydrothermal vents, there might have been some hydrogen sulfide, but after life really took hold, the oceans were swimming with single-cell organisms feeding on glucose. And there was a lot more glucose than life. So food restriction was not a problem. And in fact, those who were to win at the evolutionary game were those that could eat the fastest, could eat and process food and divide the most. It was a numbers game. Those who made the most numbers had the greater chance of surviving. And basically, what we had was an ocean full of cancer cells. Later on, they evolved into colonies and then multicellular organisms. Multicellular organisms are a little bit harder to divide, takes more energy. And as life evolved, it started eating up some of the glucose. It wasn't quite as available. Life started eating other life. So there was an arms race. There was hunted and the hunters. This required a better use of energy. There wasn't just an endless supply of energy anymore. It was no longer necessarily 
those who could divide the fastest, but those who could divide the best. And the signals for integrating nutrient availability and cell division were laid down near the beginning of life. In other words, if there's a lot of nutrients available, let's divide while the getting's good. So there were signals that signaled cell division and that integrated nutritional availability with cell division. As life started taking hold, plants formed in the ocean and put oxygen out into the atmosphere. Until this time, all energy use was anaerobic. This is an important aspect in life's history because as the rules for cell division and integrating nutrients with cell division were being laid down and carried forward to this day, it was done in an anaerobic environment when life was flourishing. It was long after life began that oxygen started permeating the atmosphere from plants in the ocean and oxidative phosphorylation could be used. And instead of only being concerned with rate of cell division, life began being concerned with the yield of cell division as we are. Ism died. But now we basically separated out the genome and created a body around it to protect that genome. And the body said, we'll take the hits and we'll see to it that our genome stays intact long enough until we can pass that genome to the next generation like a runner in a relay race. We'll take the baton, we'll handle it well, we'll protect it, and we'll run until we can pass that baton off to the next runner. And that runner then has to take care of that baton and run around the track. But now life had to make a decision. Because here we had a genome and a soma. The soma, after it hands off the baton, becomes expendable. Nature doesn't need that soma anymore. In fact, it better get off the track or it'll get run over. That is the beginning of aging and mortality. That is why we die. It's why we don't stay alive forever. Because the soma gets damaged so that we can preserve our progeny and hand it off. And we have to decide when to do that. When is it time to stop taking care of the body, allocate our precious resources towards reproducing, replicating the genome, whereas nature no longer cares about the body anymore. There has to be a decision of energy allocation towards maintenance and repair of the body versus reproduction. And that's dependent on nutrient availability. It takes a lot of energy to make babies. So there's a connection now between nutrient availability, reproduction and repair, or maintenance, repair, and reproduction. And there's signals then. There's important signals now that have to integrate a whole bunch of different cells that have a division of labor and, more importantly, nutrient availability and whether to keep that soma, that body, that organism alive, basically so it can have a second wind and continue running around the track holding that baton or whether there's enough nutrients available and it's a good time to hand that baton off and make a baby. Well, sometimes the cells that make up our body think, well, you know, our ancestors didn't have to live and die just to take care of the genes. You know, why should we give our life 
to the genome. Why don't we revert back to our old bacterial heritage and just divide and divide and divide so that we don't have to die? Well, I know we signed a contract that we would kill ourselves, but hey, you know, contracts are made to be broken. So they break that contract and they start dividing and dividing and dividing, thinking they can be immortal. And when they do that, they sign their own fate because they must die then. Because they only have two choices. They win, meaning they kill their host, in which they die. Or the host kills them and they die. So when they cease to be a member of the republic, when they cease to be one, with the Republic of Cells, when they cease to do their job for the common good, they have now sealed their fate, and they will die. Instead of remaining virtually immortal, actually, by being passed on to the next generation. So we must understand the cancer cells are healthy cells. They are not some weird, unhealthy, foreign cell. They are our bacterial heritage. They revert to their ancestry when they become cancer cells. It takes constant influx of signals to keep a cancer cell differentiated, doing its job as part of the republic. It needs to be told constantly, don't be a cancer cell, don't divide until I tell you to, until we need you to divide. Be a skin cell, be a liver cell, be a nerve cell. Do your job as part of the republic, and then we'll all be better for it. As such, when cancer cells revert, it's because they've ceased to get those proper signals. And, as, and because of that, I kind of consider cancer, and I do consider cancer, to be kind of a default condition. It is what cells default to when they cease to get proper hormonal input, when they cease to get proper instructions on what to do, they become a cancer cell. That is what they default to. It's not necessarily something that they turn into. That's what they would almost prefer to do, given improper signals and the proper nutritional milieu that simulates what they were eating in the oceans and what they were eating in the ancient oceans so that they could divide as bacteria was glucose and they were using amino acids. So we know that our ancient oceans were filled with glucose and amino acids and that's what our ancient cells ate and that is what our current cells when they revert to cancer cells eat sugars and amino acids is what they require for fuel and components to build themselves and reproduce. It hasn't changed. So cancer likes glucose, lactic acid from glucose, and glutamine. Those are the three major nutrients that cancer feeds on today whether it be an aerobic or anaerobic environment, it reverts to its ancestral knowledge, what it knows from its ancestors, which occurred in an anaerobic environment. So even if there is oxygen around, cancer cells try and make lactic acid. That's what aerobic glycolysis is. They will make glutamine because glutamine then can be used to make component parts of that cell and can be used as fuel. It loves glutamine, loves glucose, loves lactic acid. We don't need any of those. All of those are non-essential nutrients, so we don't have to eat any of those. So our job to stay healthy, reduce risk of cancer, is to make cancer's job as hard as possible. Don't feed it. Make it hard for cancer to eat and divide. Now, it'll make it. It'll do it anyway. 
It'll make glutamine. It'll make lactic acid. It'll make glucose out of anything else. But we don't want to make it easy for it. The harder we can make it for the cancer cells, the longer it'll take for the cancer cells to divide and give our immune system time to eat it. So we want to slow down cancer division by not giving it what it wants while we enhance our own immune system. That is the most powerful tool we have to fight cancer. And it works remarkably well. Okay, now I'm going to show a bunch of slides and a bunch of studies that I'm going to have to get through really, really quickly. So this is just to kind of reiterate what I said and bring us to the, to the current state of where we're at. But keep in mind our history of what I just told you, and you can understand why these studies are showing what they're showing. And I'm hoping to really breeze through this so that we have time for some questions at the end. So I will apologize ahead of time. Understanding tumor cell metabolism, the secret to winning the Warburg on cancer, a little play on words. The plethora of information on cancer cell metabolism has been gleaned over the past few years, led investigators to consider the possibility that cancer cells could be therapeutically eliminated through metabolic modulation. The idea is driving research on metabolic regulation in cancer cells in fascinating new directions and has even caught the attention of pharmaceutical companies. This is one of the first studies that showed that dietary restriction, and I, I'm going to intermingle studies. My background really is in the biology of aging, but the biology of aging and cancer are really married because most animals die of cancer. So when you slow down aging in, an, in, a, in a laboratory animal, almost universally you're slowing down the rate of cancer. Now there are some strains that die mostly of autoimmune diseases, mostly it's cancer. Okay. It was previously thought, and that's why it's called uh, dietary restriction or calorie restriction, you're showing it's not calorie restriction. Calorie restriction extends lifespan in all sorts of organisms. Every organism just about ever tested you extend lifespan a lot. But the reduction in either dietary yeast or sugar can reduce mortality and extend lifespan, but by an amount that is unrelated to the calorie content of the food, with yeast having a much greater effect per calorie than does sugar. Yeast is mostly made of protein. Calorie intake is therefore not the key factor in the reduction of mortality by dietary restriction. Hyperglycemia and cancer. Association of hyperglycemia with total cancer risk in women and men combined for several cancer sites independently of obesity provide further evidence for an association between abnormal glucose and cancer. Lactate is like candy for cancer cells. Cancer cells initiate a lactate shuttle. They make their own lactate. They want lactate to move lactate, the food, from the connective tissue to the cancer cells. There's a transporter that is spilling lactate from the connective tissue and a transporter that then gobbles it up in the cancer cells. The researchers see that lactate is the candy for cancer cells, and cancer cells are addicted to this candy. Glutamine. Increased glutaminolysis is now recognized as a key feature of the metabolic profile of cancer cells, along with increased aerobic glycolysis, what we talked about. In this review, we discussed the roles of glutamine in contributing to the core metabolism of proliferating cells by supporting energy production and biosynthesis, and cells coordinate glucose and glutamine as nutrient sources. It is what they want. We don't want to give it to them. Is there a role for carbohydrate restriction? This is just kind of a summary. Over the last several years, evidence has accumulated suggesting that by systematically reducing the amount of dietary carbos, one could suppress or at least delay the emergence of cancer and that the proliferation of already existing tumor cells could be slowed down. Carbohydrates and glucose, to which more complex carbohydrates are ultimately digested, can have direct and indirect effects on tumor cell proliferation. First, contrary to normal cells, most malignant cells depend on steady glucose availability in the blood for their energy and biomass, generating demands that are not able to metabolize, they are not able to metabolize significant amounts of fatty acids or ketones due to mitochondrial dysfunction. High insulin and insulin-like growth factor levels resulting from chronic ingestion of carbohydrate-rich Western diet meals can directly promote tumor cell proliferation via the insulin IGF signaling pathway. Third, 
Ketone bodies that are elevated when insulin and blood glucose levels are low have been found to negatively affect the proliferation of malignant cells. There are all sorts of ways that eating a high-carbohydrate diet is really bad for us, great for cancer. Insulin analogs. 20 years ago, I started talking about the detriments. I wrote an article that said, <laughs> your insulin may be killing you. This is 20 years ago. Boy, did I get hate mail from around the world from physicians. It was unknown at that time. But this is a more recent article. Insulin and insulin analogs can function as growth factors and therefore have theoretical potential to promote tumor proliferation. Analogs causing inappropriate prolonged, when they're talking about analogs, they're talking about insulin injections. What we give to diabetics who now are having a very high rate of cancer. Analogs causing inappropriate prolonged stimulation of the insulin receptor or excess stimulation of the IGF-1 receptor are the most likely to show mitogenic properties in laboratory studies. Some recent epidemiologic studies appear to be consistent with these experimental findings. They grouped five epidemiologic studies and showed that there was a huge increase in cancer among those people taking insulin. Now they're saying, well, maybe we shouldn't ignore that because it happened within two years. That's fast when you're talking about cancer justifies further research. Effects of dietary protein restriction. You're going to hear me talking a lot about protein. For many, many years, I talked about the detriments of glucose and insulin. And I talked about leptin. When I first got into it, there were just a, really a handful of people espousing a low-carbohydrate diet, myself being one. There was Atkins, there were Mike and Mary Dan Eads, and Barry Sears, and that was it. We were going around the world. Out of those, I was the only one specifically talking about a high-fat diet. The others were espousing a high-protein diet. And all along, I've shown that high-protein is not good. And you're going to hear me talking a lot more about that now. And it's finally getting some traction because of an enzyme called mTOR that we're going to talk a lot about. After adaptation to a protein-restricted diet, diabetic subjects experienced a 30% decrease in blood glucose, occurring despite a 25% decrease in both basal and bolus insulin dosages. In other words, they're getting more insulin sensitive. We conclude that severe protein restriction increases or decreases insulin requirements in type 1 diabetics and fasting hepatic glucose output and basal insulin levels in normal subjects. This effect appears to be mediated in part by decreased hepatic gluconeogenesis, but a contributory influence of increased insulin sensitivity is not ruled out. Growth hormone. People take growth hormone for, to reduce aging. That's nuts. The role of insulin and IGF signaling in longevity. Insulin and insulin-like growth factors represent a family of hormone growth factors that, that regulate metabolism, growth, cell differentiation, and survival in most tissues in mammals. Insulin and IGF initiate their action via highly homologous signaling pathways. They're cousins. IGF arose from, and insulin, arose from a common ancestor. In worms, it's insulin slash IGF. They do the same thing. Then there was a division of labor, and IGF kind of was assigned more of the anabolic functions of insulin and insulin more of the metabolic functions, although they cross-react with one another and can each bind to, their other, to, their, to the other's receptor. So insulin is a growth factor, just like IGF, and IGF can be a metabolic factor in lower glucose. The most striking and most consistent model of extended lifespan, and one which dramatically demonstrates the role of metabolism, is calorie restriction. Indeed, calorie restriction retards aging and extends medium and maximum lifespan in yeast, worms, fish, flies, mice, rats, monkeys, and recent data suggests even humans. Some of the common and consistent findings in rodents and non-human primates include lower fat mass, particularly visceral fat, lower circulating insulin, and IGF concentrations. In other words, when you calorie restrict and you extend lifespan, almost universally, you lower IGF and growth hormone. Why would you want to take it? You have increased insulin sensitivity, lower body temperature. I should also add, as a result, lower free T3, not high. I know there's a big thing going on in the paleo community that I'm fighting. Lower fat-free mass, lower sedentary energy expenditures, and decreased levels of thyroid hormone and decreased oxidative stress. 
One of the striking physiologic characteristics recently identified in centenarians is a greatly increased insulin sensitivity compared with younger subjects. Centenarians showed that this group have a lower preserved, excuse me, have a preserved glucose tolerance and insulin action and lower plasma IGF-1 levels compared with aged subjects. So not just in calorie-restricted animals. In centenarians, you have virtually a totally parallel findings that you find in calorie-restricted animals with lower temperature, lower thyroid, I should say also higher cortisol levels, not lower. And that's also you find in calorie-restricted animals. You have to understand, cortisol is an anti-inflammatory. Everybody equates high cortisol and it's horrible. It's not. Just how it's being used. Is it there inappropriately? Conclusion, strong similarities exist between insulin and IGF signaling systems and yeast, worms, flies, blah, blah. These may be linked to oxidative stress resistance, metabolic regulation, food utilization, and lifespan in each of these organisms. They suggest that insulin IGF system rose early in evolution and that it is a central component of an anti-aging system which is conserved from yeast to humans. It is a commonality. It is not one, you know, not, not different shoes for different people. I don't care if you're a yeast, if you're a worm, or if you're a mouse, if you're black, Asian, Caucasian, if you eat a non-fiber carbohydrate, it will raise your glucose levels, it will raise insulin, it will raise IGF. If you eat protein, it will raise mTOR, it will raise leptin. It will do this in every animal. And these are the commonalities we have to look at. In some people, it will raise it more than other people. You can fine-tune it later. But first, let's look at the foundation of life, because that's what we have to manipulate if we want to preserve it. The role of IGF-1 in malignancy. Now well documented that the role of IGF system extends beyond the initial steps of malignant transformation and includes the later stages of tumor progression and the multiple steps required for metastases. Indeed, the IGF axis has been validated as a target for cancer therapy. Obesity is linked to prostate cancer. Suggests that proteins and hormones stored in body fat, such as leptin and IGF-1, may promote prostate tumor growth in obese men. Also, obese men typically have lower testosterone levels and higher estrogen levels, which may encourage the growth of cancer. Calorie restriction. Mice with pituitary glands devoid of growth hormone-producing cells exhibit a mildly extended lifespan, as do genetically engineered mice with a targeted disruption in the growth hormone receptor, which results in low concentrations of IGF. Okay. Dwarfism. This is a family in Ecuador that has something called Laron syndrome. And they're studying these people because it's a model for low growth hormone. And they find, and uh, Walter Longo is the one that's leading this study. He's uh, a well-known aging researcher. Evidence in yeast, worms, and mice that restricting growth hormone could make those creatures live longer. Guevara Aguera had diagnosed family members with Laron syndrome, the rare syndrome caused by a gene mutation, the growth hormone. Over the course of his years with the family members, he noticed that people with Laron syndrome almost completely avoided cancer and diabetes, an observation that squared with the research Longo and others had done in yeast and animals. Longo hypothesized that it could be because cells must invest energy in either trying to grow and reproduce or in protection. In other words, maintenance, repair, or reproduction. Energy as life progressed just was not available everywhere. You had to make a decision, keep the soma alive or reproduce. He says that most life and people are stuck in a pro-growth mode. This study confirms our strong suspicion that studying the basis of aging could get a much better payoff than studying each disease, each disease individually. In nature, dwarf models live longer. Ponies live longer than horses. Small dogs live longer than large dogs. It's a very fascinating field in aging. So they make a drug to reduce growth hormone. MZ5-156 had positive effects on oxidative stress in the brain, improving cognition, telomerase activity, and lifespan while decreasing tumor activity. MZ5-156, like many growth hormone receptor hormone antagonists, inhibited several human cancers, including prostate, breast, brain, and lung cancers. So they're making drugs to lower growth hormone, and people are taking growth hormone to live longer. Protein increases the levels of insulin, IGF, and leptin. 
Our data provide evidence that protein intake is a key determinant of circulating IGF-1 levels in humans and suggest that reducing protein intake may become an important component of anti-cancer and anti-aging dietary interventions. No, you don't need a drug. Just don't take so much protein. And you'll lower IGF better than you will with the drug. Leptin. Genetic and pharmacological studies suggest a more critical role for leptin than insulin in mammalian energy homeostasis. Many people know nothing about leptin still hardly ever being routinely tested. And if I had to pick one, and I did recently, I got interviewed, somebody's writing a book on laboratory testing, asked me to pick one test that I would pick as being the most important, and it is leptin. It regulates everything else that you test. Results from multiple studies demonstrate that chronically elevated central leptin decreases hypothalamic leptin receptor expression. Protein levels impair leptin signaling. In essence, the augmented leptin accompanying obesity contributes to leptin resistance, and this leptin resistance promotes further obesity, leading to a vicious cycle of escalating metabolic devastation. This is really important. People who do know about leptin think that it's determined by how much fat you have. That is not true. It's determined more by what you eat. Your leptin levels fluctuate widely throughout the day depending on what you eat, except most people eat the same thing. Most people eat a high-carbohydrate diet, high-protein, your leptin levels will stay high. If you change your diet today, your leptin can be half of what it is today tomorrow. And when you lower leptin, you improve leptin sensitivity. When you improve leptin sensitivity, your body then can speak to your brain and tell it how much fat it has. You can say, you've got too much fat, you better get rid of it, or you're not gonna be healthy and you're gonna get eaten by a lion because if it's chasing a group of people, it's gonna catch you. Leptin mediates inflammation. It regulates pro-inflammatory immune responses. It identifies this study an important and novel function for leptin, upregulation of inflammatory immune responses, which may provide a common pathogenic mechanism that contributes to several of the major complications of obesity, including cancer. Okay. Leptin itself is a pro-inflammatory cytokine that also is a key component in fat that initiates the manufacture of many other inflammatory chemicals, interleukins, TNF-alpha. It's critical for health, and hardly anybody knows anything about it and doesn't realize that it's highly modu modulated by diet. Intriguingly, the link between high leptin concentrations and telomere shortening was even stronger than the link with obesity. Now, I wrote an article, so if people want more information about telomeres, telomere testing right now is mostly testing for cell, immune cell turnover, basically telomeres in white blood cells. So all it's really telling you is, is how rapidly your white blood cells are turning over and if you've got a lot of inflammation. It's basically an expensive marker for inflammation. So to me, it's not a great test. There's a lot more it has to do with telomeres. But that's what I said, leptin, will tell you the state of your inflammation, and you can predict the attrition of telomeres by leptin concentrations. That's all you need. In normal men, the fall in leptin with fasting may be both the necessary and sufficient for the physiological adaptations to these, ac of, to these axes in starvation. In other words, in calorie restriction and starvation, there is a, a, a shift in metabolism towards longevity. Leptin is necessary for this. PPAR alpha activators may be good candidates as anti-aging agents. I put this in for a reason. Cellular damage in aging is at least in part the result of fatty acid excess secondary to leptin resistance. So we come to the conclusion that youth is a leptin-sensitive state and the resistance to leptin occurs with aging. Increased plasma leptin levels with aging suggest resistance to leptin action may explain why elderly subjects have abdominal obesity and insulin resistance, leptin's failure may be considered for the metabolic decline seen with aging. But look at the title again. PPAR alpha activators may be good candidates as anti-aging agents. I talked about this a long time ago because PPAR alpha is virtually opposite PPAR gamma. PPAR alpha initiates fatty, uh, fatty acid beta oxidation. PPAR gamma initiates um, lipogenesis. So all the drugs that were being used for so long for diabetes were PPAR gamma agonists, 
And then they wondered why they were killing people, because they're pro-aging. It's good to know a little bit about aging. It gives you the bottom line. Uh, leptin, the obesity hormone is produced by fat. Excess leptin predisposes overweight people to conditions such as multiple sclerosis, cancer, and heart disease, because now we know the precise anatomic structure of the leptin receptor, we can begin to design drug molecules that can alter its activity. Again, looking for drugs. Do it with diet. You can do it today. Far better. Amino acid precursors of the citric acid cycle intermediates potently stimulate leptin. Again, it is amino acids that can stimulate leptin in the presence of glucose or not, because glutamate will stimulate it without glucose or insulin. High protein can raise blood glucose, reduce insulin. It increases glycation, oxidative damage. It increases IGF. Protein increases leptin, triggers the hexosamine, which can cause insulin resistance. Life is a constant battle between damage and repair, and excess protein increases the damage and reduces our ability to repair it. High protein accelerates aging. Reducing protein extends life. Why? mTOR. Huge. So, I want you to memorize this. Actually, <laughs> this is the wrong one. What this is, is really just a, a picture of two robotic spiders mating. Okay. But here, here we have something we can sink our teeth into, maybe. Okay, there's just a few things on here that I want you to notice. OK, um, mTOR is, is, is kind of two fractions. This is it's a, it's a complex. Here's mTOR1, and here's mTOR complex 2. And I want you to notice that mTOR1 inhibits autophagy. Autophagy is necessary for long life. Cancer cells don't like it. Okay, As you raise mTOR, you inhibit autophagy. Likewise, as you lower mTOR, you increase autophagy and it extends life. They have found now that the reason calorie restriction extends lifespan is because of the inhibition of mTOR. It's critical. Okay. I also want you to notice something else, amino acids. Okay. Amino acids stimulate mTOR directly. In other words, they act as hormones critical that people know this. Doesn't do it through, through insulin. Okay, now here's growth factors, insulin, IGF. They stimulate actually TORC2. TORC2 is involved in apoptosis and other things too. So both of them are very involved in aging and cancer. But stimulated by amino acids, growth factors, insulin and IGF, which are raised by what? Glucose and protein, right? Then you have glucose here, increasing torque 2 to a roundabout way. So this is what I want you to know. Glucose, insulin, and IGF, which is mediated by glucose and protein, amino acids, protein. And here, went. the only reason I want to bring this up is because the people who discovered this, obviously, and, and named it, frizzled and disheveled, didn't get enough sleep. But then you have, these are the things, some of the things that regulates. Gene expression, mitochondrial proliferation, metabolism, stress response, apoptosis, and lipid synthesis, which is necessary for cancer cells. In all eukaryotes, us, the target of rapamycin, mTOR, is a signaling pathway that couples energy and nutrient abundance to the execution of cell growth and cell division owing to the ability of mTOR protein kinase to simultaneously, simultaneously sense energy, nutrients, and stress in metazoans. In the past few years, a significant advance in our understanding of the regulation of functions of the mTOR has revealed the crucial involvement of this signaling pathway in the onset and progression of diabetes, cancer, and aging. The target of rapamycin was originally discovered in yeast, but is conserved in all eukaryotes, including plants, worms, flies, and mammals, in other words, all of us. One shoe does fit all. 
Mammalian mTOR controls growth in response to nutrients, amino acids, growth factors, insulin, and IGF. As a central controller of growth and metabolism, TOR plays a key role in development and aging and is implicated in many major diseases, including cancer, cardiovascular disease, inflammatory disease, metabolic disorders. Indeed, it has been calculated that mTOR is upregulated in 70% of all tumors. You can't really treat cancer without knowing about mTOR, as far as I'm concerned. The, IP, the, the PI3 AKT mTOR pathway is important in many types of cancer. The measurement of active AKT and other pathway components in human tumors has revealed that pathway activation is one of the most common molecular alterations in human cancer. The coordinate regulation of the P53 and mTOR pathways. I'm going to have to kind of go along so I can't read as much, but what it's showing is a connection between P53, the apoptosis, gene and mTOR. Amino acid sensitive mTOR, in other words, this is just showing that mTOR is an efficient effector, is an ancient effector of cell growth that integrates signals from growth factors and nutrients. Indeed, mTOR was determined by amino acid availability. That's what determines mTOR. More Shows again, amino acids, amino acid signaling and the integration of metabolism, nutrient sensing mTOR pathway regulates leptin production. mTOR is activated by free fatty acids. We propose that mTOR may be an appropriate nutrient sensor for leptin expression in adipose tissue. And yet, leptin-induced mTOR activation may have implications for obesity. They speak to each other. Leptin and mTOR are the two most important metabolic pathways in the body that will determine whether you're healthy or not. And most people know nothing about either of them. We found a major pathway by which amino acids control mTOR signaling is distinct from that of insulin. In other words, the amino acids themselves act directly as hormones. Rapamycin is an inhibitor of mammalian-targeted rapamycin and increases cellular stress response characterized by rapid and sustained activation of apoptosis signaling kinase 1. And it, is, it signals the apoptosis and selective apoptosis of cells lacking functional p53. In other words, it doesn't have to work through p53. Most cancer cells have mutated p53. They bypass the apoptosis. Or you can still kill them by regulating mTOR, because it doesn't need p53 to activate apoptosis. So they make a drug now that targets mTOR. It acts as an important regulator of cell division mTOR, Blood vessel growth, cell metabolism, resistance to hormonal therapy in breast cancer has been associated with overactivation of the mTOR pathway. The best drug to induce mTOR signaling to slow aging and chronic diseases associated with it is already available. Avoid high protein. Critical. We find it intriguing that in mammalian cells, rapamycin treatment results in a gene expression profile. Rapamycin, can't go into the history right now, but that's why it's called mTOR stands for the mammalian target of rapamycin. Rapamycin they found, and they found out how it worked. It inhibited rapamycin. I mean, excuse me. It inhibited mTOR, and that's how it worked to alleviate cancer. So they knew this. It was an old folk remedy. They, they, drug companies then isolated what it was that rapamycin was doing to inhibit cancer, and they found a whole new pathway they never knew existed in 1994 or something, and that was the target of rapamycin, they called it. And so rapamycin was known before mTOR as an inhibitor of mTOR that could treat cancer. And it, rapamycin treatment results in a gene expression profile that resembles one seen with amino acid limitation. So if you restrict amino acids, you are taking one of the most powerful cancer drugs known to man. Leucine deprivation proves deadly to malignant melanoma cells. Atkins, a lo, an anti-Atkins low-protein diet extends lifespan. It's done so, provides significant advance in the understanding of the role of TOR. A recent study appearing in Nature showed that feeding rapamycin to mice inhibited TOR and extended their lifespan. So what's high? For me, Above one gram per kilogram per day of your estimated lean mass 
is what a person should be on and no more. And if you're treating cancer, I'd go lower. I'd go to 0.75 per gram of lean mass per day and even lower if it's an aggressive cancer. You could easily go to 0.6 grams per kilo per day in divided doses. You're getting enough to keep yourself going and you're not overfeeding the mouse and you're not overstimulating mTOR. And that's critical. In other words, you do not want a high carbohydrate or a low carbohydrate, high protein. You want low carbohydrate. Yeah, you don't want to be feeding the, the, the cancer sugar. You don't want to be feeding it lac, uh, lactate. You don't want to be upregulating insulin, IGF, by a high carbohydrate diet. So yes, you do want a very low carbohydrate diet. But most people that go to a low carbohydrate diet eat way too much protein. And therefore, they're not seeing the potential great benefits that you could see with a very low carbohydrate diet. What you want to eat is fat. What I wanted to point out, actually, in that diagram before, that fancy diagram we had up there, all the things that were stimulating mTOR, IGF, glucose, amino acids, what is glaringly missing from everything I've talked about so far today? Fat. It's a free ride. Why is that? Go back to what I said to begin with. All of these pathways, these aging pathways, these pathways that control cell division and therefore cancer, developed in an anaerobic ocean. Fat could not have been used as fuel at that time because you cannot burn fat without oxygen. So all of these rules that were laid down to regulate lifespan and cell division were done using glucose, and amino acids as fuel and components of the manufacture of cells. The use of fat as a fuel didn't happen until almost three billion years later. So you can eat fat. It doesn't raise insulin. It doesn't raise IGF. It doesn't raise mTOR. And oddly enough, it doesn't raise leptin. Leptin is regulated by glucose and amino acids. So if you eat a really high-fat diet and keep your protein moderately low, we have to have some. Carbohydrates, you don't have to have any. It's a non-essential nutrient. You can go as low as you want. You can eat fiber. That doesn't turn into glucose. So carbohydrates is just fiber or not fiber. Fiber is great, and the reason fiber is good is not because you have to go out of your way to eat it. It just doesn't turn to glucose. It might scrub your intestines. It might uh, Soluble fiber can be turned into short-chain fatty acids, good for your colon. So that's great. But any carbohydrate that is not a fiber will turn to a sugar that will cause harm. It'll glycate, it'll raise insulin, it'll feed cancer. You don't want it. The lower, the better. You don't have to worry about getting too low, in other words. We have to have some protein. The key there is how much. Too much is terrible. Okay. So there can be some fudge as to how much, depending on circumstances. If you work out, if you're pregnant, if you're growing, you need a little bit more. But if you're trying to treat cancer and you're an adult, you want to go on the low end of the scale, which I would go to 0.6 grams per kilo of lean mass per day. If you're healthy, maybe one gram per kilo of lean mass per day and divided. The protein content in breast milk is only about one gram per 100 milliliters, and the daily protein intake is approximately one gram per kilo per day. This is in an infant. It is doubtful that you will ever require that much. You're growing more than, than you will ever grow. You cannot sit on a couch, eat a bunch of protein, and expect your muscles to grow. It doesn't work that way. Athletes constantly say, eat a high-protein diet because you'll build more muscle. No, you won't. You need to modulate the signals to build muscle. You don't take calcium to build bone. Calcium does not build bone. Signals build bone. We know lowering leptin will build bone. It's modulated. If you have signals to build bone, and that means the protein in the bone, which is what confers strength, calcium has nothing to do with that strength. In fact, calcium will interfere with signals. There is so much misinformation here. I need longer than an hour. What's left to eat? Fat. 
A moderately high-fat diet is associated with lower than expected, expected circulating leptin concentrations. Okay. So you lower leptin, you improve leptin sensitivity. I'll be going for questions in just a second. Can a high-fat diet be cancer? The answer is yes. Clinical diet, study I published with, with Eric Westman at Duke, showed that if you follow this type of diet, you get the same laboratory changes that you see in calorie-restricted animals without calorie-restricting. You reduce glucose, you reduce insulin, you reduce free T3, you reduce body temperature, and there's 50% reductions in insulin and, fast, and, and, and leptin and triglycerides and free T3. Same things that you, that you can do with calorie restriction, but you don't have to calorie restrict. It's a lot easier. In other words, fat is a free ride. You can eat fat and you can have the same benefits as calorie restricting. It's not calorie restricting. I showed that earlier. Your health and lifespan will mostly be determined by the proportion of fat versus sugar you burn over a lifetime. I've said that for 20 years. I've not found anything to contradict it. All the evidence that has occurred in the last 20 years has supported that one statement. Everything there is to know about health and, and aging can be summarized right there. Your health and lifespan will be determined by the proportion of fat versus sugar that you burn over a lifetime. If you burn sugar as your primary fuel, which the vast majority of people in the world are doing, you're not going to be healthy. You're going to have a high risk of cancer. If you use fat as your primary fuel, you'll be much healthier. And whether you burn fat or not, or sugar, is determined by hormones. It's going to be determined by insulin, and leptin, and mTOR, and those in turn are affected by what you eat. So what you eat are basically the most important hormones that you are going to be exposed to, because they then affect the generals of metabolism that send signals to every other cell and every other metabolic pathway and every other hormone to do their bidding. In other words, what this will tell you is that diabetes is not a disease of blood glucose. Glucose is listening to orders. Don't take drugs to lower glucose. Do something that affects the instructions from high up, from leptin and insulin and mTOR. They're affected by what you eat. And that will be determined by the communication of hormones, insulin, IGF, and leptin. Life is not in the parts. We are all made of the same stuff. Don't just treat the parts. You won't get anywhere. It is what you, or more accurately, your hormones do with the parts that determines your health and life. If I were to die right now, my parts would remain the same. I'd have the same calcium, I'd have the same glucose, I'd have the same cholesterol. That's not what's killing me. If I were to die right now, what's killing me is the harmonious integration of those parts, which has been lost. I'm no longer a republic of cells. I'm a bunch of disparate parts that aren't getting instructions, and that's what you see with cancer. Each cell going for itself. To be healthy, you have to have 15 trillion cells and 90 trillion bacteria working collectively and harmoniously for the common good. And the way you do that is by eating properly. Thank you. Now we'll take questions. I find it interesting that uh, uh, Max Gerson would recommend in his day a diet that was uh, very low in, in uh, starchy carbohydrates, uh, very low in animal source protein, and he had great results. Uh, same thing for Johanna Budwig, also from Germany. Yeah, yeah. Flaxseed and, and cottage cheese. Fla flaxseed and flaxseed oil. Yeah, flaxseed yeah, oil and cottage yeah. cheese. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and a, a bit of uh, ferment, fermented organic cow dairy, mm -hmm. okay, is what she used. But, uh, Anyway, uh, great talk. Thank you. Pre appreciate it tremendously. Uh, the, uh, the, co the other comment was that uh, fats, are, fats are good in cancer, but the wrong fats are really bad in cancer. The, the really bad fats are the oxidized fats, the, trans, the trans fats, the peanut oils, the uh, canola oil, uh, and the uh, uh, omega-3, omega-6 imbalances. Yeah, uh, that's, that's a great comment. I just didn't have time to talk about it. To me, just really quickly, all of nutrition is really pretty simple. Carbohydrates either fiber or not fiber. The, the, the less non-fiber carbohydrates, the better. Protein, I don't care where you get it. For the most part, it's a matter of how much. That's critical. Fats, to me, is where 95% of nutrition lies. The rest, to me, is just really cut and dry. 
And that's exactly right. I didn't really have time to talk about what are the good fats and what are the bad fats. Omega-6s are terrible because they do oxidize. Uh, and we have a huge omega-6 to omega-3 ratio imbalance. So there's no question about that. Um, heart disease is caused from the oxidation of cholesterol, not cholesterol itself. Cholesterol is your friend. It's there to keep you alive. Um, uh, so I, I'm really glad, uh, Dr. Cowden? Yeah. Uh, thanks a lot for bringing that point up. I didn't have a chance to talk about it. But yes, uh, there's a huge difference between kinds of fats. Great presentation. Thank you. Thank you. You didn't mention uh, the difference between animal fats and plant, I mean, animal protein and plant protein. In the China study by T. Colin Campbell, there was a great distinction, the animal fats being carcinogenic and the plant, the animal proteins being carcinogenic and the plant proteins uh, being somewhat uh, not or protective. Would you care to comment? Yeah. You already said you didn't care. <laughs> well. There are, first of all, the China study had so many flaws in it that it's a worthless study. But most of the time, when they're eating plant proteins, a lot of it is less digestible. And so they're actually intaking a whole lot less protein. So it's a lower protein diet, which is good. That being said, the most important aspect is how much protein you're eating. Is there a difference in kinds of proteins? Yes, there is. There are certain amino acids that stimulate mTOR more than others. Leucine is the major amino acid that stimulates mTOR, you'll find more leucine in animal proteins. There are fewer, there is less mTOR stimulating amino acids in plant proteins than there are in animal proteins. But the volume of protein you eat is going to outweigh the kind of protein. But thank you, it's a good Thank comment. you, thank you. One more thing about the protein. Uh, tyrosine is, is, an, is a substance that's known to increase cancer, and it's much higher in animal source protein than it is in plant, plant source. Yeah. Thanks. Okay, thank you. Can we do one more? Yeah, oh, sorry. Um, through nutrigenomic testing, I can see what kinds of fats different gene types require and the percentage. How does that figure into what you're talking about? Is that still, uh, we're still working with more specific targeted fats with nutrigenomics yeah. then? I think that, you know, nutrigenomics and uh, metabolomics, and basically we're talking about you know, differences among people. And I don't want to say that differences among people are irrelevant. They're not. They can influence digestion. They influence uh, gut flora, for instance. We're pretty complex. But what I think we have to get down first is the foundations. That, for instance, we know that you or me or anybody who eats a piece of bread is going to raise their blood glucose, guaranteed. And it can be a worm, it can be a fly, and it will cause harm. The difference between you and me is how much harm is going to be caused. That harm is going to be determined by how rapidly glucose is going to rise in you or me. It's going to be determined how that glucose uh, affects insulin and how rapidly and how much it rises because two people can be exposed to the same amount of glucose and one person might raise their insulin to 30 and another person might raise it almost to 300. I found in a child who was obese. He was insulin sensitive but he had a very hyperinsulinemic response to a certain amount of carbohydrate. The type of gut flora that inhabits you is going to affect the uh, effect of glucose and insulin. We definitely have differences, but what we want to find are the commonalities. And we know that protein is the major component that will raise mTOR. And if you raise mTOR, it will do all those things that I mentioned. And it'll do it to everybody, but in different degrees. So I would say that in virtually everybody going on a very low carbohydrate diet, I should say very low non-fiber carbohydrate diet, will be beneficial. It will be more beneficial for some than others. But I, I can't find any credible argument to, that carbohydrates, non-fiber carbohydrates, carbohydrate to turn to sugar is actually good for somebody. Right. Do, do you think, I'm trying to get my patients to get a glucometer and everyone tests their after meal uh, insulin levels. Do you think that's a good strategy to get your patients to be doing as a... Well, I think, <laughs> well, you said two different things, but... I think, yes, getting somebody to test after meals insulin levels is great. That's not available as far as I know. After meal glucose levels you can test, which isn't as important to me as after meal insulin testing. I always thought that it would be great to 
have a, an insulometer that you could actually check. Um, I'm more interested not so much in their after meals, but what they wake up with and what they go to bed with as far as my background really is in the treatment of diabetics and heart disease, not so much in cancer, although I've had great success in treating cancer. I haven't uh, pushed myself as a cancer doctor. So, and, and the work of Dr. Thomas Seyfried, which is the yeah, I'm familiar with it. cancer is a metabolic disease. It's everything he's writing about in his research mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, well, certain things. But yeah, it, it's certainly parallel. Yeah, and it's stuff. This is stuff that's not new. They say most of it, with the exception of mTOR, which I first talked about now almost ten years ago. But twenty years ago, I started talking about insulin and uh, you know, started some of the seeds on leptin maybe fifteen years ago. Um, so it, this isn't new. It just hasn't really made its way certainly into mainstream medicine, and I'm hoping that. You know, can start planting seeds here, and and get some uh, you know really life-saving use out of this knowledge, and then maybe some of the mainstream will eventually pick it up, even though there's no drugs really that are are, are pushing this right now. Thank you. <clears throat> um, Lee mentioned um, carbohydrates and Gerson, and you're talking about a high-fat diet. Gerson used a rather low-fat diet. And study after study is showing that high fruit vegetable intake uh, has a, quite a low uh, risk of cancer. Is there an integration between what you're saying? And I'm not talking about carbohydrates from grains now. I'm talking about carbohydrates from sugar, uh, from fruit, which has carbs. Yeah. So we're talking about different types of carbs. Uh, if you talk about a lot of carbohydrates from fruits and vegetables, which is what they're doing, Again, a lot of those carbohydrates are going to be fiber. So they go in and out of you. So it's actually a lower carbohydrate than if you were to eat grains, which 90% turn to sugar really quickly. So, and in fruit, it doesn't turn into glucose, and it doesn't raise insulin as rapidly. It turns into fructose. Fructose then will turn into fat in the liver, which could be good or bad, depending on what else you've eaten with it. If it was just fructose you ate, I don't think it's going to be as bad, because then you're going to burn that fat. If you eat, let's say, grains with that fructose, yeah, that would be bad because then you can't burn the fructose and it just stays in your liver and causes uh, you know, lipid uh, disease in the liver, um, you know, fatty liver and stuff. So what we're also talking about is better or best. I mean, the, the average U.S. diet is so bad, really, that you can close your eyes and, and, and throw a dart and say, change that, and you've improved it. You know? <laughs> So it's not a matter of improving what a person's been eating. But I think what we have to do is look at some of the science behind it to not just improve the diet, but when you're facing a foe, an adversary like cancer, you really want to give it your best shot. You want to throw the very best diet you've got at it. And to do that, you really need to know the science behind metabolism. And mTOR science now is really, really clear that you need to keep mTOR low if you're going to have a shot at really affecting cancer. And I think it's been known before that that insulin and IGF are, are two big components of it too, so you want to keep that, that low. And we know now the nutrients that are affecting it. We know the nutrients that raise insulin IGF, the nutrients that raise mTOR, the nutrients that raise leptin. It behooves us to keep those low because we don't need them. <laughs> and, and, and we've got a friend in fat it's not going to raise any of it. And so, as, as Lee was also saying, the type of fat you eat is really important, too, and can have an effect. And so it's a little bit more complex than, than just eat any fat. But the, the basics I want people to understand, it should be a high fat, you know, very moderate to almost low protein, and a very low non-fiber carbohydrate diet, I think, is going to give you your best shot to both prevent and treat cancer that's already there. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. That concludes this presentation. This recording was produced by Aurora Recording. We may be contacted by calling 828-944-0177 or visit our website www.auroraRecording.com 
and that's spelled A-U-R-O-R-A recording. Thank you for listening. Shelly Schlender for MeAndMyDiabetes.com. Thanks to Debbie Curtis, Best Answer for Cancer, and Ron Rosedale for permission to post this audio talk. For the music, thanks to Lynn Patrick. You can find more information like this and a transcript of this talk at MeAndMyDiabetes.com. <laughs>